Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kitchen. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. And a fascinating guest we have for you today. He is the author of How Innovation Works, Matt Ridley. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks, Constantine. Great to be on the show. It is great to have you here. I love the way you've ignored Francis. <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. We, we, we love that. Did I ignore um, him? Yeah, uh, you, you just said hello, Constantine. Or thank you, Constantine. <laughs> That's because you, you said hello to me. It doesn't matter, Matt. It doesn't hello, matter. Francis. Too late, mate. Too late. I'm just using you to make fun of Francis. That's all that happened there, Matt. Very warm <laughs> welcome to you. Uh, so good to have you on the show. You've written an absolutely fantastic book. We're so excited to talk to you. It's called How Innovation Works. So why don't you just start us off by telling us uh, how does innovation work? What are the things that you wanted uh, to focus on and write in the book? Well, the reason I wrote the book was because I think innovation is the most important fact about the modern world. It's what gives us all our prosperity and all the gadgets we use and so on. And yet it's a surprisingly mysterious process. Nobody really knows why it happens to us and not to rabbits or rocks uh, or why it happens where and when it does happen. Um, And you certainly can't turn it on or off like a tap. Um, So I tried to get under the skin of uh, by telling a ton of stories about uh, innovation Trying to distinguish it from invention first, because I think, uh, you know, we have this view that the brilliant genius think dreams up a scheme and then the world beats a path to his door. You know, what's that phrase? Make a new mousetrap and the world will beat a path to its door. Whereas that's not the case. Uh, You've got to do a hell of a lot of work to turn an idea into something practical, reliable and affordable that people actually Mm -hmm. want. Um, There's a nice story I like telling uh, at this stage, which is in the book uh, about a beaver and a rabbit looking at the Hoover Dam. Mm. And the beaver is saying, no, I didn't build it, but it is based on an idea of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that is a very, very lovely story, Matt. And, and we talk about I- I- innovation. Isn't part of the problem that we don't truly understand it and our education systems don't really encourage it? Well, I I think uh, it is surprising how much resistance there is to innovation. In theory, we're all in favor of it. If you ask Mm. people, are you in favor of innovation? They all say yes. And we all buy the new iPhone or whatever. But actually, if you look what happens, people think of every reason to throw obstacles in the way. Uh, I have a chapter about resistance to innovation. Mm. um, And it's really interesting how, you know, even coffee ran into huge obstacles when it was first introduced in the 15 and 1600s. Um, two reasons. Uh, one, because the wine and beer industry didn't want a competitor. Uh, and two, because kings didn't like people gathering in coffee shops talking about whether kings were doing a good job, uh, which they often weren't. Um, so uh, there's an enormous amount of resistance. But as you say, there's also a complacency about this that, that you know, we we sort of take it for granted that innovation will happen. But then we say, oh, the only people who can do it are geniuses uh, who are quite different from you and me. So, And they have something called creativity, which other people don't. And I think that's a myth. I think uh, if you look at the great innovators from Thomas Edison to Jeff Bezos, they're, they're just people who work a bit harder, try a bit more, fail off, fail more often, you know, things like that. So uh, one of the messages I'm trying to get across to young people in particular is we can all join in. We can all do innovation if we want. In fact, there's a lot of consumer-led innovation these days. Mm. You know, there's a beautiful example in my book of something called Night Scout, which is um, a way of monitoring your kids' sugar levels if they're diabetic 
on the through the internet. And this was basically invented by a bunch of parents of diabetic kids, um, rather than, as it were, by a pharmaceutical company. Mm. And you mentioned the the coffee shops, and it kind of brings to mind the question that I had about it, which is how important is it for people to be able to gather together and communicate with each other, share ideas, throw stuff around, talk. You're nodding vigorously. People won't be able to see it, but you are. Uh, and it seems like, uh, you know, at the moment, that's certainly become a much more difficult thing to do. Do you think that will have some sort of impact on uh, our ability to create new things, come up with new ideas and so on? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it may, we may not measure it if lockdown only lasts for a month or two, but, well, it's already lasted longer than that. Um, but to the de- well, and the other point is, of course, today through the internet, we can share ideas still. Mm. So ideas are meeting and mating and having baby ideas as we speak um, uh, without people having to run into each other in coffee shops. But there is no doubt that um, there is a, uh, a huge advantage in people being able to talk to each other and people able to consult with each other. One of the themes I try and get across in the book is that innovation doesn't come from geniuses in ivory towers. It comes from people who are socially connected. The, st- the story that best exemplifies this is two people try and invent an aeroplane uh, in the early 1900s at the same time. One's called Samuel Langley. He's He's a grandee, uh, well-connected um, uh, sort of astronomer uh, with a huge government grant. But he says, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to shut myself away. I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm up to. And I'm eventually going to emerge with a perfectly designed airplane, which is going to be huge. I'm going to put a pilot in it and launch it off the top of a houseboat on the, river, on the Potomac River. This is in December 1903. It went 20 feet before it crashed, okay? Um, whereas 10 days later, on an island off North Carolina, two bicycle mechanics from uh, Ohio called Orville and Wilbur Wright, who had spent years communicating, writing, talking to everybody who'd ever built a glider or who'd studied bird flight or whatever. They just... they they, they you know, they harvested every nugget of information they could. And then they did a ton of experiments with gliders before they ever went near trying a powered plane. They did it right. And Samuel Langley did it wrong. And one of the things that I find most interesting in your book, uh, Matt, was how you were saying that actually China has become a hub of innovation as opposed to the West. Now, why is it that China have become so, so successful when it comes to innovating? Yeah, I I think it's true that China is not just a smart copier of the West, which you could argue that it was 20, 30 years ago. It is now uh, forging ahead of us. If you look at what Chinese consumers do in terms of their use of electronics and things like that, they don't even use credit cards, let alone paper money anymore. Um, They're way ahead of what we're doing. So some of the stuff that's going on in China, also in genomics and biotechnology, but also in nuclear and other things, is now path-breaking. How did China become such an innovative country? Paradoxically, I argue because it's been quite free for most of the last 40 years. Now, that may seem a bit strange because it's not free. It's an authoritarian communist regime. But that's only politically Economically, under the sort of compromise that Deng Xiaoping came up with, um, actually, entrepreneurs are very free in China. That is to say, if you want to start a business, invent something, um, uh, or do an experiment, 
there's none of the petty officialdom that would get in your way in this country. Uh, you know, the newt surveys and all that sort of stuff that you'd have to do um, before you built your factory. Uh, um, uh, so actually, you're free to just do it as quickly as you can. The one thing you can't do, of course, as an innovator in China is start a new political party. Um, <laughs> that's uh, off, the, off the grounds. Now, I think that's coming to an end. I think if you look at what Xi is doing, He's crushing the economic freedom as well as the political freedom. And I think he will kill the goose that lays the golden eggs if he goes on down this path. And this happened, there's a rather beautiful parallel with Chinese history, which is that there was a period when China was by far the most innovative part of the world. Around a thousand years ago, it's, the, it's in the ten hundreds roughly, uh, and it's under the Song Dynasty. And this is when they invent, you know, gunpowder and the compass and the printing press and paper money and... Um, uh, several other things. Um, and what was key about the Song Dynasty? It was the most devolved empire that China ever had. It was the one with with the most devolution down to the local level of decision-making, economic decision-making. So basically merchants were in charge in city-states. And then along comes the Ming Empire and does the opposite. And basically every Mandarin uh, is in charge and every merchant has to submit um, a perm, you know, a request for a permit if he wants to leave his home village uh, or invent something, that ain't the way to do it. And, and China descends into poverty and uh, stagnation as far as innovation is concerned for several centuries. So I think Xi may be recreating the transition from Song to Ming. I've left out the Mongols who came between the Song and the Ming, but you get the point. <laughs> minor detail, minor detail there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting that one of the things you, you highlight as, as important to innovation is actually perspiration. Uh, you talk about how really it's not so, so much the work of a single genius, yes, but it's also not just uh, a process of you know, having an idea. You have to be in the space in which you have ideas, which is at work, and in China from nine till nine, six days a week. Is that the crucial factor here that perhaps in the West we're starting to become a little bit more concerned with our quality of life, let's say, which may, may be a good thing, but the, the more, more kind of hungry countries like China that are, are looking at you know, breaking through at any cost. Is that really the dividing factor here? I think what Constantine is trying to say, Matt, is have we become wimps? <laughs> yeah, and idle buggers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you will never hear that on another Matt Ridley interview uh, again. So this is the this is the beauty of trigonometry. We get the guests to reveal their true nature. Well, we're, we're lazy. Uh, this is the Guardian headline tomorrow. Matt Matt Ridley says British people are idle buggers. <laughs> oh no! Oh God! I didn't say British. I said the West. And anyway, <laughs> even worse. Um, <laughs> rowing back fast. Um, the British were fantastically hardworking mm. when mm. they were incredibly innovative in the Victorian times. Notoriously so, people from other countries would come here and say so. People said the same thing about Californians 50 years ago. You know, mm. it's unbelievable how, much, how many hours they put in, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and as you say, they say the same about the Chinese today. So, yeah, there really is a, um, a, a secret source to innovation, which is to put in the elbow grease, to put in the hard work. Uh, and um, uh, and and do the experiments, do the trial and error stuff. Um, again, there's a lovely phrase about the Wright brothers uh, that the guy who took the photograph of them taking off for the first time used, which was he says they they were the workingest boys I ever saw. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think you were alleging uh, 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 
with, with, the, with the word perspiration, you're referring to uh, Thomas Edison's famous remark that invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Although in the book I point out that he originally said 98%. Mm-hmm. But Matt, doesn't it also need, when it, when it comes to these types of innovations, don't you need time to sit and ruminate? and play and let the mind wander. It can't just be work, work, work. Otherwise, you've got no time to let the mind wander, problem solve, pontificate, all the rest of it. Well, the one thing that's certainly true is there's a lot of serendipity in innovation. That's to say a lot of surprising uh, changes of direction by innovators. They start out trying to invent one thing and they end up inventing another. Teflon, Kevlar, the post-it note, these were all invented by people who were looking for something completely different. I mean, the post-it note story is quite nice at 3M. They're looking for a permanent glue that works with paper, uh, and they keep coming up with this temporary glue that doesn't work, and they think, what a waste of time. And then this guy called Art Fry goes off to his choir practice, and he thinks, hang on, I could use this to keep my place in the hymn book. Um, And uh, the post-it note, and it happened to be yellow, the paper they were using. So post-it notes have been yellow ever since. Um, so um, uh, serendipity is uh, important. And there's there's a really nice recent study. There's a, there's a, there's a website called Innocentive where companies or other organizations can post problems that are getting in the way of their development of an innovation mm. and say, can anyone think of a solution to this problem? And if you do, we'll reward you. Uh, and study, and this has worked quite well. Quite a lot of people have solved their problems uh, on this sort of in this sort of open source way. But nearly always, it's someone from completely outside that particular field of engineering or whatever it is that does it. So it really helps to have uh, people coming together from different disciplines. My favourite example, which I've used for years about ideas having sex, as I put it, is um, the example of. Uh, the pill camera, which you swallow, and it takes a picture of, of your insides uh, on the way through. I don't think it's a terribly successful technology, but you know, there you go. It's, it was an idea. Uh, it came about after a conversation over a garden fence between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer. Mm. <laughs> Fascinating. So, one thing that I really wanted to touch with you on with you, Matt, is the fact that our society seems to become ever more binary. And that means that we tend to associate with people who think like ourselves more and more, whether it be socially, culturally, or politically. Doesn't that therefore mean that our opportunities to create diminish as a result of that? Because we work best, I think, with people who think differently from ourselves, as the example you've just given. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, 20 years ago, I was utopian about the internet. This is going to be a fantastic technology for bringing people together from all parts of the world so they see each other's point of view and uh, have each other's... <laughs> I, it didn't work out quite like that, did it? Um, but that said, you know, you can't think of anything more isolating or conformist than, you know, a... It's, slightly religious rural community in 19th century New England or whatever. So, and that's why it's cities and city-states where this stuff has has happened best. Mm. Um, Fibonacci is one of my favorite characters in the book. He goes from uh, 11th, 12th century uh, Pisa to North Africa and comes back with this idea of counting from one to 10 and um, having a number called naught. 
um, which turns out to be a really good innovation and makes mathematics much better. Um, so uh, it 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 has all you know we do still have cities where people meet other people mm. and we do still have an internet where you can come across other people um i saw a tweet by constantine this morning saying that he likes tw twitter despite everything um and i'm the same you know i do come across stuff on that that i probably wouldn't if i was just reading the Times or the Telegraph every day. Do you mm. see what I mean? Um, no, I, so I do. I do see what you mean. But on the other hand, I suppose what Francis is really getting at, is, are we moving down, uh, because of political polarization, particularly down the route of uh, companies that only hire people that think politically a certain way uh, uh, and organizations that think, you know, only hire people with a certain mindset? Will that actually preclude us from being more creative? Well, it, it's been true in the past that, you know, IBM became too dominant, hired people who wore white shirts and black ties and short hair and, um, uh, you know, and therefore missed out on the sort of, uh, you know, what Bill Gates achieved. Um, so again and again, you see the dominant industry, the dominant company in an industry uh, being having an end run around it from a new entrant. Um, and that process has got to be allowed to continue. Uh, in the corporate world. And there is a real worry, in my view, in that if you look at the rate of turnover of businesses, mm. it's slowing right down, mm. actually. Uh, the, 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 there hasn't been a new entry into the top 40 companies in Europe for something like 30 years. Um, that's weird. You know, you'd thought in this day and age, you know, where's where's the European Amazon or Google or, or Facebook? Uh, it's just not happening. Um, and so... Um, uh, I do think that, that the world is becoming increasingly uh, easy for conformists and complacent types to 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 raise barriers to entry, um, and if that's if groupthink is part of that, it's only going to make the problem worse. Um, so, yeah, we do need to shake things up every now and then, and we need uh, outsiders coming in and shaking up industries every now and then. You come across quite a big business that's still quite good at innovating. Mm. And I, I asked Jeff Bezos once, you know, how do you stop Amazon becoming big and bureaucratic and anti-novelty? Um, and he gave quite a nice example of one of the management tricks that he does to, to because he's aware of this problem, um, which was something called a reverse veto, where somebody junior in the organization comes up with a new idea. And he goes to his boss and the committee sits around and discusses this idea and nine of the ten of them think it's a bad idea so normally that would rule it out but as long as one person champions it then the, it has to go up to the next level of management and that way he at the top will hear about some very unpopular ideas within his organization that's the kind of thing that i mean it doesn't happen in government bureaucracies it doesn't happen in universities much anymore. It doesn't happen in big companies much. It's the kind of thing that if I were any good at being a management guru, which I'm not, uh, I would teach. And do you think the problem, and we've touched upon this, but I want to explore this more, is you know that old cliche, necessity is the mother of invention. Is the simple fact that right now in the West, although things might change with COVID, we're simply too comfortable. We don't have that desire, that drive to really change, to really try and shake things up. 
because our lives are easier than they've ever been. I know what you mean, but I don't, I don't on the whole think that's true because if necessity was the mother of invention, then Zimbabwe would be better at software than California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's a huge desperate necessity for innovation in the really poor parts of the world. Mm. But actually, innovation tends to happen in the richest parts of the world. So California recently, um, well, China's not the richest part of the world, but it's heading that way. Uh, you know, Victorian Britain was the richest place on earth at the time, but it was the most innovative. Renaissance Italy was way richer than anywhere else in Europe, and it was doing all this innovation in the 1500s. Um, so uh, in that sense, I don't think necessity is the mother of invention. But I think where you might be onto something is that um, that bushfire of innovation doesn't seem to last for terribly long in any one place. You know, Italy passes the buck to the Netherlands, which passes the buck to Britain, which passes the buck to California, which passes the buck to China. And the reason for that may be because those hungry, immigrant, hardworking, workingist kids who start new companies and develop new ideas have children who go off and become you know lecturers in cultural theory or something um <laughs> i'm being a bit rude there but you you, you get the point you know the, the, the second generation is often often wants to be an artist rather than an engineer you see this problem again and again you see it in victorian britain you see it in california today Mm. So, so it doesn't last. And, uh, you know, the question I wanted to ask you was actually about the potential downsides of some of the innovation that we've seen. Uh, I mean, one of the, the huge issues that we're all going to become aware of, we're not already, that was something that Andrew Yang highlighted, which is the impact of automation on jobs uh, in, in the West, particularly, but everywhere, you know, the, the, the likely disappearance over the next 20 years of the vast majority of trucking jobs, of uh, the you know supermarket assistants, all of that shopping assistants, all of that stuff, uh, the closing down as a result of that of shopping malls that's likely to happen all over the place, leading to very significant societal impacts. Mm. Is there a is there a danger that some of the innovations that we we create, we talked about it earlier with the internet, uh, the downsides that we didn't think about can be hugely significant and impactful on the world. And actually moving and so fast and breaking things isn't always a good thing. Well, I would say that we worry too much about the downsides. You know, we, we've fretted, for example, since the 1960s, that any reproductive technology, in vitro fertilization, test tube babies, whatever, would lead to eugenics, would lead to people going off to sperm banks and getting Nobel Prize winners sperm because they didn't want, uh, you know, because they wanted hyper-intelligent children. Designer babies has been a worry for about 50 years. It's never happened. Why? Because people want their own kids. They don't want clever kids. They want kids like themselves. If they're clever, <laughs> they want clever kids. If they're stupid, they want stupid kids. You know, I mean, seriously, you know, people, this is what people want. People want, want, and people have used test tube babies to have their own children, to, to cure infertility, not to, to have special children. To everyone's surprise, you know, everyone predicted otherwise. So that's quite a, that's an example of us worrying too much about a misuse of a technology. And as for the automation issue, we've been fretting about that for over 200 years since the Luddites, mm -hmm. and it's not come anything like true. In the early 1960s, there was a huge panic in America um, under the 
Lyndon Johnson administration, um, because unemployment started to creep up. And they said, this is because of automation. Um, computers are now going to be used in factories. This is terrifying. This means nobody's going to have a job. What are we going to have to do? We're going to have to give everybody uh, more welfare and leisure and work mm-hmm. out how we reorganize society. Uh, well, unemployment went down again. And at the moment, we have higher employment, or rather we did before COVID started, um, in most Western societies than ever. It's true that each of us has to work a smaller proportion of our time on the planet in order to have a good life. So uh, the average person today, if they're in school and university till their early 20s and they're retired from their mid-60s but live till their mid-80s and they work a 38-hour week, they'll spend less than 10% of their life at work. Mm. Whereas 150 years ago, you'd have to spend, you know, 30% of your life at work uh, to achieve the same lifestyle. So we have achieved leisure, but we've shared it out quite equitably between us. And there's a whole bunch of new jobs that you know, a Victorian wouldn't understand. He wouldn't know what a software engineer was and he wouldn't know what a flight attendant was, for example. So so innovation creates new jobs as well as uh, destroying them. There are issues of dislocation, of adjustment um, when new technologies come in. But I really don't think we need to worry uh, about the idea that the robots are going to take all our jobs. One of the reasons people are more worried about that at the moment is because the robots are suddenly taking upper-middle-class professional jobs. Um, it's fine when they take agricultural laborers' jobs or um, whatever, but now they're starting to replace lawyers. Oh my God, we can't have that. <laughs> funny you mentioned that a Victorian wouldn't understand. It would be quite a funny experiment to go back in, in, in time and try and explain to a Victorian that you're now a podcaster. <laughs> I'm not sure they'd have a lot of time for that. Quite rightly so, actually. But um, we we were talking, uh, Matt, uh, you know, sort of about the China and the West. I really want to delve into that. Do you believe that what we're seeing with the slow death of innovation in in the West is the the gradual decline of our society at the very beginning? Or do you think that is hyperbole and uh, a lot of nonsense? Well, uh, as long as somebody does the innovation, we can still have access to it. So if the Chinese invent vaccines and new forms of nuclear power, they'll sell them to us. So, Mm. you know, it's not as if we'll be cut off completely if we don't do it ourselves. But it does seem to me a pity that, for example, if you invent a new medical diagnostic device in Britain, it takes uh, between three and four years to get it approved. Mm. And as a result, you don't do that you go off and invent a computer game instead because you can get that approved instantly. You don't need permission. Um, this is a point Peter Thiel makes, that permissionless innovation uh, has, in, in digital has diverted a lot of energy into that and away from inventing things that really solve our problems. I mean, I think it's really shocking that, that we are faced with, uh, you know, years to develop a new vaccine. Mm. Um, we should have been on the case... Uh, 10 years ago saying there's going to be a pandemic when it is let's have a new vaccine development platform ready to go uh, that means we can be much faster in 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 solving this problem um why haven't we well there's not much money in vaccines for pharmaceutical companies because if they work they do themselves out of business um and uh you know the world health organization and other big bodies like that have sort of said we'd rather fret about climate change or obesity we're not interested in infectious diseases anymore um i exaggerate but only a bit um 
Uh, so I think that um, uh, that 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 the, the, there is a real concern that we are uh, complacent about the need to keep innovating within our own societies uh, and doing not nearly enough to encourage it. Um, and uh, the single thing we best thing we could do is speed up decision making by government bureaucrats, because it's not that government government bureaucrats say no. They never said no to fracking. They never said no to genetically modified organisms in Europe. They just took such a long time to say yes mm. that everybody gave up and went home. Well, Matt, you talk about the vaccine. Isn't isn't that a bit of a contradiction in that it seems, at least at this point, that the vaccines are being developed predominantly in the West? Uh, that we're ahead of everybody else on that. That's a good point, actually. Good old Oxford, um, yeah, uh, is is seems to be ahead in in the vaccine race, and this is partly because uh, the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation have thrown a lot at vaccines in the last few years. So my point is really they should have done that 10 years before, or rather someone should have done that mm. 10 years before. Uh, because I think, I, I actually, you know, the Gates Foundations are heroes, actually, in this. The, the, what they did with insecticide-impregnated mosquito nets, which is the technology that's made the most difference to malaria in the world, what they did with the pneumococcus vaccine, where they designed a clever scheme to encourage pharmaceutical companies to develop an unprofitable vaccine that saved... It's saved three quarters of a million lives already. Um, you know, there are some, there is some good stuff happening in the West. You're right, mm. but it, 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 it could have. We could have done this a lot sooner. We could have been a lot faster with it um, if we were, as a society, more interested in innovation. And there's something that I wanted to touch on with you. So I can't remember the exact stat, but. Essentially, uh, the China makes n over 90% of the antibiotics for the United States. They're, they're made and they're patented in China. Doesn't that fundamentally put the United States as a society at a, at a disastrous weakness, doesn't it, surely? Well, yes and no. I mean, sure, it's possible for um, uh, the... Uh, you know, the Chinese to um, uh, decide to cut America off to punish it for something, mm. cut off its antibiotic supply. But then that's true of every trading relationship. Um, mm. uh, you know, for, for years after the war, the UK had a policy of encouraging homegrown food in case the U-boats came back. Well, um, it, you know, even if the U-boats did come back now, we don't make any combine harvesters in Britain, so we couldn't do anything about all this homegrown food that we'd be growing. So, and, and you know, and uh, um, we don't make ma many laptops in the UK. The, pretty well every technology, the world has become integrated and dependent on each other. And if the Chinese are selling antibiotics to the Americans, then the Chinese need the Americans just as much as vice versa. And the great lesson of free trade is that it creates interdependence and it creates mutual interest. Um, really well. And I think most Chinese business people understand that, even if Xi and Trump don't. It's an interesting point you make. And actually, I remember when I was studying political science at university, the, the, the stat that people love to talk about is that there'd never been a, a war between two countries which had a McDonald's. Um, an illustration of, of the importance of free trade since actually been, I mean, you could arguably say that uh, Russia invading eastern Ukraine was the first time that that, had, that rule had been broken. But I think was there, France, a, was there a McDonald's in Baghdad? Uh, don't know, actually. Uh, 
Good question. <laughs> Good question. I'm sure we'll, we'll get a researcher on it, Matt. Yeah. Just we'll, we'll get back to you on that one. Um, uh, and by researcher, when we when we mean an, an a man angrily tweeting us from his basement. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we, we get plenty of that. Um, but uh, very upset about uh, our lack of accuracy on that issue. But uh, just coming back to the serious point that Francis was making. Sure. Yes, the world is interdependent. Sure, the Chinese need us and we need them. But there's a difference, isn't there, between needing money and needing life-saving medicine, number one. Another point I would make to you on the political side of things uh, is that it limits our options. So right now, for example, we're talking about uh, the Chinese uh, treatment of the Uyghurs. And if you are dependent on that country for 90% of your essential medical supplies, you can't really go around saying, well, this is genocide, this is mass murder, this is like Nazi Germany, If that, even if that's what you believe. And I'm not saying I know that that's what's happening, but if that's what you believe, it limits your options, doesn't it? And politically, the ramifications of this sort of arrangement are significant. Yeah, but we didn't have many options when the Soviet Union was behaving badly towards its own people. We had no trading relationship with them. Uh, and that didn't give us better leverage, if you see what I mean. The fact that they were exporting nothing to us. I mean, it's certainly true. But, could, that, but my point, Matt, sorry to interrupt, but my yeah, point no, is, no. could Donald Trump go out and call uh, China the evil empire now? Well, I mean, Donald Trump probably could and would. But, <laughs> Mate, he probably did that yesterday, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, he probably will do that in the time between now and the time we release this interview. But uh, could Boris Johnson, I guess, is my question. Well, I think you're you're putting your finger on quite an important point, which is that the, uh, the 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 cozying up to China that George Osborne was pushing five or six years ago, um, and which led to some pretty unpleasant sort of veiled threats from Chinese interests saying, uh, if you want your nuclear power stations to work, then you better not be nasty about us <laughs> or whatever, um, uh, is, a, is, is an issue. Um, and I don't suppose Britain ever behaved like that, did it? I think it probably did <laughs> when it was top nation. Um, uh, and, and of course, but the answer is not for Britain to become more self-sufficient. It's for Britain to become more prosperous and stronger. And often you'll do that with trade. So again, I, I still come back to the point that that we do need each other. Uh, you know that there is a mutual interest uh, here, um, and I think we have to to sort of fasten our safety belts and get through the G period and hope to get to a more um, uh, reasonable regime running China after that. Uh, because you know China's got huge problems too. I mean, it's got an aging society and uh, a big welfare issue, and uh, and 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 also its trade surpluses of the last. Here's the way my friend Don Boudreau, the economist, puts it. So you mean they've sent us um, uh, antibiotics and washing machines, and we've sent them pictures of American presidents? Sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know they've got that money. They need that, if they've got our money, they need um, that money to be worth something, and it's not worth something if they destroy us. And 
what we've seen right now is our relationship, and in fact, the world's relationship changed, fundamentally changed with China due to COVID. And we were talking beforehand about uh, you were doing some research into the origins of COVID. Um, would you be able to enlighten us? Because there's lots of different uh, thoughts as to how the virus was created. Did it hop from pangolin to another animal to back to pangolin and then spread in a wet market? Was it something that escaped from a laboratory? What are your thoughts on Yeah, this? great question, Francis. I wasn't expecting this video to be monetized in the first place. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, when, it, when this first happened, I thought it was very likely that this was going to be a wildlife market issue, mm. uh, that somewhere in, in a market, a, a bat and a pangolin had... Um, come together in such a way that a, a virus recombined between the two and it then infected people. We now know that is definitely not what happened. By the way, that is what happened with SARS in 2002 mm. with civet cats. This did not happen in this case. We know that for pretty well certain now because the samples that were taken from that wet market were all negative. They never found a positive sample. And moreover, the people in the market who caught it caught a very well-adapted to human beings form of the virus. Mm. So the, that, the market was a super spreader event, not a zoonotic event, to use the technical terminology. This wasn't where it jumped. We now know that for pretty well certain. And the other weird thing is that in SARS or MERS or any of these other things, we quite soon identify the source of the virus, the animal that has this virus mm. in it. In this case, we have still not done so. Now, you may have heard of this bat sample, RATG13, but that doesn't have the virus that infects us. That is a very similar virus, but it's, it's, it's not nearly similar enough. It's 40 years divergent if, you're, if you use normal evolutionary timescales. Um, and in particular, its spike protein, which is the bit that it uses to get inside the cells, is very different, is really not close enough at all. Um, now, the pangolins have another virus. That's less close than the bat one, but its spike protein is more close than the bat one. So neither of these viruses can be the one that, that somebody caught in October, November last year in Wuhan, okay? They, he, somebody there caught a different virus. Now, was it caught from a village in Yunnan where these two viruses had come together at some point and recombined? Possibly. Or was it caught from a lab where experiments were being done to combine the spike protein of one virus with the backbone of another virus? Those were exactly the experiments that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing with coronaviruses. They were making so-called chimeric pseudoviruses with the, 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 the backbone of one virus and the spike protein of another. Now, they won't say um, uh, whether they were uh, experimenting with this particular virus, uh, uh, with the bat version. In fact, they say the bat sample... They found it in their files and it had already disintegrated, so we can't go back and look at it again, which is a bit weird. Um, but actually, we now know that actually when they found it in their files, they didn't admit that it's actually something they'd called by a different name, 4991, back in 2012 when they isolated it from a... 2013, sorry, from a, a bunch of miners who died going into a copper mine in southern Yunnan. Three of them died. Uh, and they died with uh, pneumonia and had a and tested positive for an unknown coronavirus. Um, 
So it's looking very like someone is covering up something about work that was done on this virus over the last five or six years, um, either because they fear that it might be the source or they know that it might be the source. Now, that's the wrong way to go about it because it's still very likely that it's not the source, that it wasn't a lab leak. And the way to prove that is to come out and give us absolute open transparency about every experiment that was done in that institute. Uh, and that way, and, you know, make Zheng, uh, Xi Zheng Li and uh, Tian Jun Huan, these people who are working on bat virus, make them available for interviews. Now, if, if China would do that, then we could rule out the lab leak hypothesis. Um, but at the moment, we can't. If far from becoming less plausible, it is becoming more plausible the more we find out. And you have just made every weed smoker on the internet incredibly happy, Matt. I want you to know that they're sitting at their computers going, I knew it, I knew it. Well, I know that is the danger. And of course, you know, there is a a fate worse than death on the internet. And that is to uh, adopt a position that is also adopted by Donald Trump. Mm. (laughs) Well, I was going to say you you would have uh, upset uh, a few David Icke fans uh, earlier in the interview, but now now you've made some of them happy. So it comes out. (laughs) (laughs) But but just sticking with that, I mean, obviously, uh, as you talked earlier about the the kind of regime that China has, Xi Jinping wouldn't be the sort of person that would allow that sort of information to be properly ventilated outside of outside of China if there was a risk that China had been responsible or this laboratory had been responsible. Um, and I guess it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, the, the negative sides of innovation. I mean, why? For, actually, for, for most people, an interesting question might be is, why would a laboratory be doing these sort of experiments? What is? Are they trying to develop biological weapons or are there legitimate reasons to try and... No, there are legitimate these? reasons. And, and they were quite open about this a few years ago because there's two labs <clears throat> in a sort of rival, friendly rivalry doing this. One is in North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill and the other is in Wuhan. These are the two leading chimera viruses uh, labs in the world. Um, and um, they bu- published a joint paper in 2015 in which they say you know what, maybe these experiments are a little too dangerous because we now realize that because what we're we're trying to do is create a virus in the lab that has the characteristics of SARS or something like it, but can definitely infect human cells, not just bat cells, Mm -hmm. so that we can study it, so that we can then develop therapies and vaccines to defeat it. But we realize that in the process, we are creating viruses that are more dangerous to human beings. Um, so they said that, and they said, you know, some of these experiments are, uh, you know, ones that we perhaps shouldn't be doing. After that, the U.S. government put a moratorium on such experiments, but it only lasted for a couple of years. It lifted it again, mm. um, uh, and the Chinese government didn't put a moratorium on, on these experiments. So the, the motive was definitely good. Let's study the heck out of coronaviruses so that when a pandemic does start, we know what to do about them. But it didn't work in the sense that it didn't put us in a position to have a quick vaccine or therapy ready. Um, and it may indeed have made the made the pandemic more likely. And what responsibility do you think China have to take for this pandemic? Do they have any responsibility? Did they do enough? Or were they being uh, circumspect with the truth? Well, um, uh, 
obviously you can't be responsible for a natural accident that happens within your own borders. But when I thought it was a wildlife wet market uh, issue, as it probably was, I thought they had considerable responsibility because after SARS, which did happen in a wildlife market, um, there were plenty of warnings you know, there's a Hong Kong scientist who used the word time bomb, ticking time bomb about wildlife mm. markets. Um, and you would think, and, and short and after SARS, they did shut down a lot of these markets. They've then reopened them progressively in the last few years. And um, uh, indeed, uh, Xi Jinping has been particularly um, uh, espousing traditional Chinese medicine. And the only reason you buy um, pangolins is not because they're good to eat, but because you think they're, they're, they're a medical uh, help, to, you know, for health reasons, not for nutritious reasons. Um, so in that sense, the Chinese authorities do have culpability for not doing more to control the wildlife trade. And, you know, let's face it, there's another reason for that, which is that we don't want pangolins to go extinct. And Chinese demand is what is driving pangolin smuggling from Malaysia. Um, but I have to now admit that argument has got weaker now that we know the wildlife market wasn't responsible in this case. So attention then turns to the question of the um, uh, the lab and was the lab doing something for which China uh, should be held re- uh, accountable? And the answer there is we simply don't yet know, but we need to know more. And how, how are we ever going to get that information, do you think? I don't know. Um I um, uh, I have such faith in human nature that I'm pretty sure there are scientists within the labs who will want to get the information out and will eventually find a way. But uh, the longer this goes on and the more tracks are covered. I mean, the only reason we know about these copper miners who got ill in 2012 uh, in Yunnan is because... Um, while a lot of stuff was taken offline over the last few months, a master's thesis that discussed this case was not. They missed it. So, you know, that's quite a nice example of how hard it is for them to to censor all this and shut all this down. And they have got some good reasons for censoring it, which is that nutters in the West are going to make absolute hay with anything that comes out. Um, you can include me in that phrase if if you wish. Um, uh, so you um, self-identify as a nutter, do you? <laughs> definitely, yeah. don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but Matt, let me ask you this because I think just for people who who don't have the scientific understanding of what you're talking about, as I don't, as Francis doesn't. Um, if you're saying it's highly unlikely now that this happened at a wet market, other than some kind of problem that occurred in a lab. Is there another way that this could have happened? Yes. Um, Yes. The other hypothesis, which is still very plausible, is that somewhere in Yunnan, in the far south of China, which is where these viruses seem to exist in bats, or similar viruses seem to exist in bats, somewhere there, a a chap going into a a cave to dig bat guano for use on his fields... um, picked up two different coronaviruses um, from uh, probably from one species or possibly from two species of um, horseshoe bat. Um, 
And inside his own body, those two recombined to produce a brand new virus. And we know this can happen. And this coronavirus is particularly good at this natural recombination. Um, And he then uh, gave it to a couple of people in his village who gave it to a couple of people, but it never really took off. But over a number of months, it became better and better at infecting human beings until the point where it actually, somebody traveled to Wuhan and uh, started coughing in a restaurant or uh, on a crowded train or something like that. And then it exploded. Um, uh, So um, that is, you know, as it were, just as plausible a hypothesis. And those are the two hypotheses that I think we need to... um, to put up against each other. And, Matt, and, and, you know, in that scenario, the Chinese have got nothing to, to blame themselves with it. You know, they couldn't have foreseen it and, they, and they, there was nothing they could have done. And Matt, we, Donald Trump has been famously uh, very, very critical of the WHO. Um, where do you stand on this? Do you think uh, his criticisms are justified and, uh, or do you think they've been unfairly blamed for their handling of this particular crisis? I think the WHO has behaved very poorly indeed in this crisis. Um, Their refusal to um, uh, talk to Taiwan, even when the Taiwanese uh, scientists were saying there is human-to-human transmission, um, they, they, as late as the middle of January, the WHO put out a statement saying this virus does not transmit from humans to humans. That's naughty. I mean, by then there was plenty of good evidence. They were ignoring it. They were taking Chinese uh, um, assurances at face value. Um, uh, And also, in a more general way, I think the World Health Organization has not been doing its day job, which is to keep us safe from pandemic infectious threats. Um, The WHO was spending a huge amount of energy trying to suppress e-cigarettes and vaping over the last few years. Five years ago, it put out a statement saying the greatest threat to human health in the 21st century is climate change. This doesn't suggest an organization that was focusing on its day job. And in the Ebola outbreak of 2014-15, the WHO eventually produced a hugely self-critical report uh, saying that it had, for political reasons, so as not to offend people in um, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and uh, Liberia, uh, it had, um, long after it shouldn't have done, it had reassured people that the situation was under control. When Médecins Sans Frontières and other charities were saying it's not under control. Um, so uh, I, I think the World Health Organization is a an organization that is uh, corrupt with a small c, not fit for Uh, mission and uh, has performed badly. Whether the right thing to do is to cut off its funds, uh, I don't know. Um, But as one of the largest funders, the UK has some responsibility, I think, to push for some pretty serious reforms here. That is really stinging criticism there, I would say, of the the organisation. Do we know why uh, the WHO behaved in this way with this virus? Is it a political issue? Is it an issue of incompetence? Is it an issue of something else? I think a lot of these big international organizations end up being very bureaucratic, very political. Um, uh, It's in the nature of the beast. Uh, The particular appointment of 
Dr. Tedros from Ethiopia as a uh, as Director General of the WHO in competition with a, a Brit called David Nabarro um, a few years ago, uh, I think was a mistake. Um, he was the former Ethiopian uh, Foreign Minister and Health Minister, um, and as such, he had been very, very close to China, um, and Ethiopia is China's sort of favorite country in Africa. So there is a very close relationship there. And you know, just for example, the business that Taiwan is not allowed to be part of the WHO or even attend its meetings, that is something China has only recently begun to insist on, and the WHO has just gone along with it. It hasn't protested. Um, before that, uh, the previous Chinese regimes were being more reasonable about Taiwan. So essentially, they're quite a, they're, they're a very weak organization with no real power. And instead of standing up to China and being honest, they kowtowed to them and they sort of, well, they helped us get to where we are. Well, well, we'll have to see what happens with their investigation into the origin of the virus, which they've recently announced. But it has um, uh, also announced that it won't be visiting the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which does seem to me a pity. A pity. <laughs> I mean, that, that's uh, that, that's like not going to to the potential murder scene, isn't it? If you're investigating a murder, wouldn't that be a, a good analogy? I think so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly lost for words here. So, uh, why wouldn't they do that? Um, I, I don't know. You'll have to ask them. Yeah, I'm sure. So- Tedros is coming. <laughs> we'll be very happy to come and trigonometry. We'll find out. Yeah. But but then that begs the question: What's the point of having this investigation? Well, um, they will presumably talk to lots of people in the Chinese Academy of Sciences uh, and in the Centers for Disease Control, which uh, and in the Wuhan government as well as the national government, um, and they will hope to get direct answers. <laughs> <laughs> the way you've described that gives me no confidence whatsoever, I have to say. Uh, and you're nodding again, people won't be able to see it. But uh, okay, guys, well, um, I, don't, I, I don't really know where to go from here, Matt. Um, it doesn't sound like we're really going to get Have I got you into terrible trouble and myself? No, well, probably no. yourself. Uh, we're going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've already been tried to be cancelled about eight times. We've lost the studio three times. I, I, I'm more lost for words <laughs> because, uh, I mean, that, that does not sound like a good way to be dealing with this situation, Matt. Uh, and, and it sounds to me, we joke about it, we laugh about it, but from what you're telling us, we've had a serious problem which may have been man-made, and the investigation into this problem is not going to look at what may well have been the source of the problem that, and rely solely on evidence from people who, who, who have a political reason not to give straight answers. Is that well, an accurate I, summary? Yeah, I think it is. And I would repeat the point that if it's not man-made, if it didn't come out of the lab, uh, then the, the the only way you're going to persuade us that that's the case is by being completely open about what was going on in the lab. And that's not what we're getting at the moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there we go. <laughs> I don't know where to go from here. This is crazy. You, you're, you're basically saying to... I, I don't... Francis, help me out here, man. Uh, what he's saying is there's no point in uh, the report. Uh, the, the WHO is at the behest of China 
and uh, we're fucked anyway <laughs> great fantastic stuff uh, all right well uh, matt the last question we always ask is what's the one thing we're not talking about that we should be but that sounds to me like what we should be talking about doesn't it <laughs> yeah that's quite a good answer but the, uh, the, the 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 other thing that i think is a terribly important thing and I, i'm a biologist really originally uh, and i'm a keen naturalist we don't talk nearly enough about invasive species I just seen a grey squirrel go past my window. This is a species that's wiping out the red squirrel. Um, there's all sorts of uh, uh, wherever you go in the world, you know, ash dieback killing things. Uh, this is the big conservation issue, and we we, we neglect it in favour of climate change or other uh, issues or air pollution or something. But I I think invasive species are a terribly important issue. But that's for another day. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's going to be what we lead with in publishing this episode, Mike, given <laughs> some of the stuff we just talked about. Uh, but listen, uh, thank you so much for talking to us. The book is absolutely fantastic and beautifully written as well. It's very easy to read, lots of interesting stories to illustrate the points that you're making. How innovation works, I, I recommend everybody gets it. Uh, if, if you... <laughs> I, 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 this is the first time I'm lost for words in doing trigonometry I don't know what to say. Get the book, but also wear a mask. And should we wear masks even? Let's talk about that before we go. Oh, yeah. Um, well, um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it, it seems crazy to be making masks compulsory at this stage. You know, if, if we should have done so back in March if if we were serious about it. But I do, I, 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 I'm not an anti-mask fanatic um, because I do think they, to some extent, A, they signal that you're trying, and B, they do make some sort of difference. I personally can't stand the ordinary masks because they fog up my spectacles. Mm. So I've gone and got one of these, uh, you know, what are they called, visor things, you know, like you're a knight in shining armor, except it's made of plastic, and um, you can see through them. And they're great. I mean, I, I find that much the easiest way. So when I was at an airport recently, I, I was wearing that instead. And you can even... You can even eat under them. You have to sort of do this. But All right. Well, there we go. Buy the book, wear a visor, and uh, don't eat bad. So I, I don't, maybe we'll end on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Matt Ridley, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're all going to look into the WHO now. Absolutely. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Matt. And if you want uh, to uh, follow us, please remember that all our episodes – uh, come out and live streams come out six nights a week and they are always at 7pm UK time that's 7pm UK time Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.